0: So we come this morning and we've been looking specifically not just at what we believe but why we believe and uh, we've seen that we can't live without meaning and purpose. We try but we can't do it and we've seen that we can't live without true of of God's rightness, justice and mercy. But today I want us to look at the resurrection through the eyes of Not just what we believe, we'll look at that as well, but why we believe. Why do we believe? And the answer is? Jesus. 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 There, the guys have been coming, okay, they know. The answer is always Jesus. Um, But there's something about Jesus, and today, in particular, I don't think anyone disputes that Jesus lived. His impact on history is greater than that of some of the most well-known ancient historical figures. His impact, Mm -hmm. you cannot understand our world, its ethics, its morals, its story without being confronted with the person of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so his existence in history is undisputed. And yet, the critical thing the amazing thing that we look at today is this claim that he was more than just a historical figure, that he's someone greater. He himself said to his opponents, before Abraham was, now Abraham lived way more than a thousand years before him, he said, I am. So what's the evidence for this? This extraordinary, historical, critical evidence of this? who lived a beautiful and remarkable life, who died... A brutal and unimaginable death. And according to the historical evidence we'll look at in a moment, was resurrected to a new and indestructible life. So today we look at it. Why do we believe? And the first reason we believe is because of these eyewitnesses. Now we just read a few. Now the woman, granted, had not yet seen Jesus Well, Mary did, because if you go to John's gospel, you get a whole lot of other things. And what's really interesting of these eyewitnesses is that in in those days, whether we like it or not, women were not regarded as acceptable witnesses. If you were going to invent a story, if you were going to create it, you would not during those days have placed them as the first eyewitnesses. The reason they are recorded as the first eyewitnesses is compellingly because they actually were (laughs) and no one was willing to change the actual story and so we find whether it's the guys on the road to Emmaus whether it's this appearance that we read and I just love the richness of the story you know at first they absolutely terrified John tells us the door was locked and then Jesus stands among them and says, no, he didn't. <laughs> he says, peace. <laughs> they must have thought, <laughs> you know, they'd been completely traumatized by his death. They are wondering, what's going on? And then, as he spends time with them, and he says, listen, touch me, it's me. And eventually now they can't believe because of joy and amazement. I love this story. It's so rich. It's so full. And then he says, okay, give me some food. And he eats and they look. But poor Thomas isn't in the room and he misses the moment and he doubts any questions. And Jesus comes back a week again. And Thomas had said, I can't believe without the hard evidence of having the opportunity to touch him myself. And Jesus comes to him and offers him the evidence he so wanted. It's interesting when John, the apostle, thinks about this in John 20, verse 31. He's thinking of the whole gospel, but he's also thinking of these The John 20 descriptions of the resurrection and he says these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name remember the Messiah was not just a religious title it was the anointed king this is written that you may believe that Jesus is the God's anointed king, that you might believe in the message, ministry, identity, and gospel of Jesus. So Jesus knows as he encounters Thomas, that Thomas can believe because he sees, but he says, blessed are those who will believe without seeing. In other words, who will believe because they accept the testimony of these first eyewitnesses. And so John helps us, Luke helps us, Matthew, Mark, they help us. Why? Because they capture this. And when in Acts chapter 2, they start shouting this on Pentecost, they tell people, God has raised this Jesus whom you crucified and made him Lord in Christ, and we are the witnesses. They literally stand up and say, come and question us. Just a few years later, Paul would write to the Corinthians, and what we have is chapter 15. He would say, listen, there are hundreds of people who actually saw Jesus alive. We don't know when, but Jesus appeared in w- on one occasion to 500 people. This was not mass hallucination. Now, this was just a decade or so afterwards. All those people were still around. You would not make that claim If those people could not be consulted and checked out and tested. Now, lots of people don't believe. In one sense, obviously we respect the fact that everyone has the important right to interrogate the evidence and decide for themselves. But the one thing we can't do is we can't create truth. We have to face truth. There's a narrative in our world today that says truth is what you want it to be. Believe it sincerely and it's true for you. That's a recent perspective that's already been questioned, especially by the younger generation because they are so sick of a world in which everyone is free to invent the truth. A world in which the truth is chosen by every individual is a world of lies. And so truth We have the freedom to choose what we believe, but we do not have the freedom to decide what the truth is. The truth is something much bigger than my choices. But some people have chosen to dismiss the resurrection and go something like this. The early church began among a people whose worldview was, quite frankly, magical and mystical and mythical. And the powerful experience of the earthly life of Jesus and his person, well, once he was dead, they missed him so much that they projected those longings into some kind of wishful thinking that he would be with them again. And these thinking evolved then from the desire to see his ideas continue into some kind of psychological experience in which he was perceived to be alive. Now, this argument relies on a magical worldview. It relies on decades of time, even centuries, for that belief to gradually emerge and evolve. And it relies on the absence of eyewitnesses to correct this evolutionary drift. Believe me, a lot of people have put a lot of work into this, but one guy, Tom Wright, after researching literally thousands of ancient documents and texts, both Jewish, Greek, and other languages, says simply this it is willful ignorance of the mythical view and arrogance (laughs) to claim that modern science initiated the view that dead people don't rise like everybody knew that wasn't news we didn't invent it in the 20th century dead people don't rise The idea of one man rising from the dead in the middle of history was even for the Jews who believed in a great resurrection at the end of time and some of them even disputed this. The Sadducees were very sad you see because they didn't believe that but the Pharisees were happy because they believed that one day there would be a great resurrection. The Greeks of course thought the material world was inferior and Actually, what you wanted was nothing more than to leave this world in death and go into some kind of mystical greater life afterwards. Nobody in Jesus' day believed that a dead person could bodily rise and just live again until Easter. And so this idea that there were highly charged emotional and spiritual experiences built on some kind of magical world view, simply doesn't hold water. But at the same time, so you have a world that didn't believe people could rise from the dead until Easter. And then suddenly, not just dozens, but hundreds of people instantly start saying, there is one man who in the middle of history was crucified and has been raised from the dead the idea explodes onto the stage of world history how do you explain that which means this is already addressing the idea that it took a lot of time just to evolve no it didn't there are some famously scholars called the Jesus Seminar who reversed the known dating of the multiple historical sources including the New Testament and they picked up Well, Dan Brown actually picked up the idea from them for his Da Vinci Code that the Gospel of Thomas, which is almost certainly written more than 100 years after Jesus, was actually the most original and earliest text. And no, that wasn't. A scholar called James Dunn has done massive work on dating all the relevant texts of the era, not just the New Testament. And although... Uh, not in our theological camp, let's put it that way, he flatly refutes the Jesus Seminar. He says the idea of Jesus' resurrection and his appearances, we can be entirely confident were formulated within months of Jesus' death. Not years, not decades, not a century. Things don't evolve that quickly. You know, it took over a thousand years for the Old Testament revelation to cement the idea for some of the Jews that the resurrection at the end of time was even possible. Now, we find the earliest documents like Thessalonians, Corinthians and Galatians, letters written by the Apostle Paul, deeply establishing Literally from those first moments that Christ died, that he was buried, that he was raised again, and that he appeared to the church. The church didn't create this. These ideas created the church. And of course, lastly, this theory relies on the fact that there weren't any witnesses. There was no one to stand up for this. And this is what the Jews and the Roman authorities were hoping by knocking over the silly idea that someone could rise from the dead that it would just go away well it didn't go away it outlasted certainly the rule of the second temple it outlasted the Roman Empire and we have the promise that it's going to outlast every other empire And so we believe because of the eyewitnesses, blessed are those, Jesus says, who have not not seen and yet believe. But the other reason we believe is because of the theological meaning of Easter, which is the hope that it brings. Now, I could spend a lot of time on this. I'm going to keep an eye on the sunrise because that's my cue to finish. Peter, who is Jesus' most famous disciple, starts his first letter that he gets to write. And what, what idea does he go to? Well, he goes to Jesus, and he goes to this idea that we get a new beginning because of Jesus, and that new beginning because of Jesus is because Jesus rose from the dead. He says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This Peter who in an encounter that we don't fully know In Luke 24, Jesus made time to show himself to Peter one-on-one. And he would take time with him on the beach and they would walk together and he would talk about his denial and he would reinstate him and get him back. And all those wonderful ideas are wrapped up in Peter's thought, but none of it would have made any difference according to Peter. He wouldn't have had a starting point if he didn't have the resurrection of Jesus. You see, the Bible pictures Jesus, especially in his resurrection, in a in, in harvest metaphor of being like the first fruits. So the early harvest is the promise of the rest of the harvest to come. And, it's, and Jesus is like the first fruits. Now, there are many other concepts that relate to first fruits, but just maybe we'll just stick with this. So in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is described as the first fruit, which essentially means this, as with Jesus, so too for us who believe. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, so too will we. He is the first fruit. He is the promise of what lies before all of us. One of the tragedies of the recent time has been watching some of the celebrity funerals in which people do not have this hope. And then, as it were, they try to come to terms with a world in which once life is over, it means nothing. And you see people trying to say goodbye to their loved ones and saying something, well... Like now he is a star in the sky looking down on us. What's the basis of that hope? You see, when we stop believing in things that have a basis, we start believing in anything. Whereas for us, As with Jesus, so too for us who believe. We too shall rise according to Peter. We shall share his inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. And then yes, the logic, as with us, so too with all creation. God's world won't end with a hopeless whimper or with a catastrophic explosion. Our hope is, as with Jesus, so with us. As with us, so with creation. Now, many people in our world today long to see a better world. Whether it's the climate crisis and the environment or a more just and humane society, whether it's alleviating hardship or ending wars. The problem is that a worldview that has no hope, a worldview without a resurrection, contradicts the innate desire that they feel for the world to become a better place. They're trying to be hopeful without having a reason for hope. What do I mean? You see, if you reject the idea of a loving God who created this world and made it good, and who saw it fall, but still loves it and wants to redeem it? Then, as we have seen in the series, I better explain it very briefly. If you reject the idea of a good creation, you end up believing that either the world is a random, freak accident, in which existence and life, in spite of the odds, spontaneously generated. And then improved. It didn't degenerate. It didn't atrophy. It actually got better and better and better and better. To produce the world that we've got. Against fantastical odds. The world is an accident, but it has no meaning. Its progress is also an accident. Against all odds. Or the world is just this given, this giant predetermined machine and everything is predetermined. Even your choices are not real. They are just cruel fantasy. And therefore, as many believe today, that you must try, we call it existentialism, you must try and make a meaningful middle out of a meaningless beginning and a meaningless end. Can you see why hope is so important moms and dads our kids are protesting the climate crisis our living for the moment just making meaning in the moment has put their future at risk it really has So we're living in a world that tells you to live for the moment, but hey, take care of the planet. What's the logic of saying that I have to think about the future, worry about the future, and live for the moment? We've got a fundamental contradiction that people can't explain about the things they really care about. You see, Jesus taught us how to live, not for the moment, but in the moment. Precisely because through creation we have a meaningful beginning. And through the resurrection we have a meaningful end. An indestructible hope that cannot be taken from us. And So Tom Wright again offers the resurrection as a much clearer way, a completely logical and consistent way to care for people and to care for the world. And so he writes this, well, he preached this in a sermon on an Easter Sunday. The message of the resurrection is that this world matters, that the injustices and pains of this present world must be addressed with the news that healing and justice and love has won in the person and resurrection of Jesus. If Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in some kind of spiritual or emotional sense, then it's just about me and finding a new dimension in my spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly, physically raised from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world. News that in the language of the Emmaus Road guys, that warms our hearts, precisely because it isn't just about warming hearts. It's literally about a new beginning for the whole world. Easter means he concludes that in a world where injustice and violence and degradation are endemic God is not prepared to tolerate these things and so we get to work and plan with all the energy of God to implement the victory of Jesus over it all and so this Easter Sunday, as the sun rises, so does our hope. Wasn't a morning like this when those women went to the tomb, and they were told, or well, they were asked, "Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is, he is risen." The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen. risen. Sin has been paid for. Death is defeated. We believe our God has come to save. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that on this morning, we get to come in these moments and hold before our minds and our hearts the power of this truth that the Lord is not dead. He is alive. He is risen. He is risen. And so, Father, won't you group our hearts with the truth of this witness and victory that history has been redefined because of what we remember this day. Thank you that we can live in hope. We can engage a world of sorrow, engage a world that needs your healing and your hope because our Lord is risen.